Welcome to the 178th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Access to affordable, quality health care is a major issue for farmers. Many are forced to take town jobs just to qualify for affordable health care coverage. This takes them away from the land and makes good, hands-on management of the operation almost impossible. Ironically, Farming is one of the most dangerous occupations in the country, and so when crop and livestock producers decide to forego health care insurance, the risks to life and limb are tremendous. That's one reason the Land Stewardship Project is working hard to reform our health care system and make it possible for everyone, including farmers, small business owners, and other rural residents, to qualify for affordable, quality coverage. Without healthy farmers, we cannot have healthy communities or healthy landscapes. As part of this work, LSP has partnered with several other organizations in Minnesota that share many of the same goals for creating a fair, sustainable health care system. One of those organizations is the Minnesota Nurses Association, which represents thousands of professionals who are on the front lines of keeping people healthy. During recent LSP health care meetings, Nurses Association Executive Director Rose Roach has made it clear that in a way farmers and nurses have a lot in common. They're both working hard within a system that's controlled by corporations that put profits before people. During a recent interview, I talked to Roach about how on a daily basis nurses see the problems associated with a dysfunctional healthcare system. We also discussed ways of transforming healthcare from a commodity to a public good available to everyone. Nurses are on the front line of health care. I mean, they're seeing patients many times before doctors even see them. Um, you know, and the nurses tell me on a regular basis that the patients they're seeing are coming in sicker and sicker. Um, and a big reason for that is because of a lack of access um, to health care. And access can mean a couple of different things. But when you're not getting tested or treated or assessed for whatever is going on, you know, up front, it becomes a greater complication down the line. So whether the access is based on geographics, meaning you literally, you know, location-wise, you don't have a facility or a clinic close by you, and maybe you don't have public transportation and you yourself don't have a car or whatever, that can literally cause an access problem. But of course, the really big one that most people struggle with is the cost mm-hmm. and the financial access uh, piece. And that is all about if you have a high copay, if you have to pay a co-insurance, or a high deductible, that will immediately turn some people away because they will make a choice that says, I can't afford that, so I will sweat this out and hope it goes away. And then, of course, again, we're back to, uh uh-oh, this could cause them to stress out because they can't access care. That that increases the potential of whatever disease uh, they're dealing with getting more severe. And then nurses are seeing folks sicker than what they really actually need to be. So so those two things um, under access. And then the other issue that nurses struggle with on a regular basis is actually being able to provide the level of care that they want to provide based on the needs of the patients um, and the acuity of the patients, and that's around staffing. If a nurse can't get to you right when the button is pushed, 
it's because they have seven other patients that they need to get to whose acuity level at the moment may be uh, more severe than what your need is. But for nurses, they don't like to have to <laughs> prioritize that way. They're about caring for individuals, and they want to get to you right as you need them um, to provide you that pain med or whatever it might be. So it's frustrating for nurses when they're not able to provide the care that they need to when all we're talking about here is putting another nurse or two on staff so that that care can, in fact, be provided. It seems in a way that farmers and nurses have a lot in common, that they're both trying to provide a healthy product or service in a system controlled by large corporations. It seems like it can sometimes make it difficult to fulfill goals of working towards sustainability. It is indeed. One of the reasons why we're excited about partnering with Land Stewardship Project around the issue of health care as a human right is for that very reason. Nurses are also involved in the environmental issues that surround healthy foods, healthy air, clean water, all of those things that absolutely impact health, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, health is so fundamental to who we are as human beings. And if you don't have your health, you know, it's hard to learn. It's hard to uh, go to work. It's hard to be a productive citizen if that basic need isn't met, which is you're feeling good, mm-hmm. right? You know, the corporatization, I'm certainly not an expert on the corporatization of, of big agriculture and what's happening to family farms, although my dad was born and raised on a little farm down in Nicollet, Minnesota. So, um, you know, I have a little bit of that in my my history and my background. But I know that the Monsantos of the world (laughs) are not doing good things for either the family farms, nor are they doing good things for the health of our community overall. Mm -hmm. And bad trade deals are having impacts also, of course, on um, agriculture and on food. And they're also having a tremendously negative impact on health care, whether it is patents around pharmaceuticals in particular and making drugs more and more expensive and therefore uh, less accessible to people who need them. So all of that really does kind of come together and overlap uh, one another. I mean, in Minnesota, um, hospitals by law are have to be nonprofit. Uh, I always say that it's such a misnomer to say that anything in the healthcare <laughs> industry is nonprofit because the reality is is uh, that's just semantics. Right. That's just an IRS status is what that is. Um, means whatever boatload of cash you're sitting on, you don't have to split it up between shareholders <laughs> um, because believe me, they're sitting on a boatload of cash. And you know the when you go outside of Minnesota, well, even within Minnesota to some degree, but particularly. When you get into the really big corporate uh, health care, such as uh, the health insurance companies themselves, like a Cigna and Anthem and Aetna, we are talking salaries for CEOs of obscene levels. Um, I just read an article where the Anthem CEO, Joseph Swedish, last year received a $15.7 million salary, which is a 94% increase since his 2014 salary. Stephen Hemsley of United Health Group, uh, healthcare actually, was at $66 million. And my question always about that is, who did they heal? For $66 million, the answer is a big, fat, zero nobody, right? There's plenty of money in the system. We just have to get it in the hands of people who actually provide the care. People go to the hospital for nursing care. 
because otherwise you could just basically heal at home, right? And go see the doctor and be done and go heal. You go to the hospital because you need someone around the clock to be there to help care for you. That's why people go to the hospital. So nursing care is so important. And yet this all becomes again about the money. So when we're going to put profit over people, we end up with a very fragmented, complicated, costly healthcare system that doesn't necessarily improve the health outcome of the patient. And I think the same thing happens within the corporatization of our food industry. Right. The thing is, is you know, we keep treating, trying to treat it like a consumable good, but it, you, don't, you don't go out and buy your health and use it up and then go out and buy it again, right? right? You know, right. like you do a car or a bottle of, you know, Coca-Cola or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely inalienable to freedom itself, as I was saying before. Of all the things that we should be able, it seems like, to guarantee every person wouldn't Good health be one of those things because, of course, it is if you walk into whether it's a classroom, whether it is a grocery store, whatever, or your own workplace, if there's somebody walking around with TB, tuberculosis, guess what? Everybody has now been exposed to that. It's a public health issue for us to not take care of one another on something as basic as our health, to treat it like a commodity. To almost, I I like to sometimes say, you know, trade it in this marketplace and this marketplace that's based on precious metals, right, in these exchanges. So, um, you know, I have a 31-year-old son. He happens to reside in California at the moment, and uh, he works for a small business and is trying to kind of make, you know, make his way in there. But because they're under the qualifications or the uh, levels of the ACA, um, they don't provide you know health insurance to their employees. So he goes to the exchange. Well, because he's also in sales and on commission, and you know right now is just beginning to start his career, he doesn't make a boatload of money. So therefore, I guess my son's life is only worth a value of silver mm. versus, you know, someone who is fortunate enough to make enough money to be able to afford platinum. Well, I would argue my son is worth diamond, you know, right? He's my son. Um, so it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me that we actually have the audacity to base health on something in, in, a mar- in a marketplace like that. The marketplace hasn't worked for healthcare. We've been doing this now for 50, 60 years, and quite frankly, it's a huge failure. It's proven day in and day out that it's a failure because l- even though we did some good things under the Affordable Care Act that I would really actually categorize as more insurance reform than healthcare itself reform, because we really didn't tackle the main issue of cost containment within the Affordable Care Act, although we did some things of expanding Medicaid, which was really positive and important, dealing with some abuses like the pre-existing conditions and lifetime maximums, although I'm telling you, the industry's figuring out how to get around that stuff, right? Because now they're turning around and they're, they're taking the formularies for certain types of drugs and they're compressing that formulary. Well, if you're, you, that's the drug you need to be healthy to survive and it's usually those ones for you know real advanced and serious types of illnesses guess what you may have just been given a death sentence because you can't buy it under now your plan because it's not on the formulary right so there there's ways that you know they're very clever when it comes to this kind of stuff and this is why nurses feel so strongly that you can't treat 
um, healthcare is a consumable good because it is our health. It is immoral to make a decision about whether someone, and you, this is literally the truth, the way it's done, lives or dies based on whether they can pay for whether it's the care, the, the pharmaceutical, whatever it might be. That's not the way, that's not humane. That's not the way we should be as a society. One of the things nurses have been talking to us a lot about lately is they'll come in and literally just say, chart, chart, chart. All we do is chart, chart, chart. Instead of being at the bedside, we're at the computer side. And that's all tied into how do they get paid through this particular, um, you know, plan, Medicare, Medicaid, all these, you know, different programs and where the coding is and everything that needs to be put in. In there, what I just served recently on the uh, governor's healthcare financing task force, and a, a physician actually told us that, um, and he's running a, a you know a kind of a medium-sized clinic in a community, and he said he is hiring LPNs and RNs, and they aren't touching a single patient. Mm. All they are doing is sitting at a computer inputting data to make sure he, you know, the clinic is it was reimbursed and paid right. for the patient population in which they're caring for. That's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> it's nuts. <laughs> Rose, you recently served on the Minnesota Healthcare Financing Task Force, which held meetings around the state gathering information from the public on strategies to increase access and improve the quality of healthcare. Did any positive recommendations come out of that? At the end of the day, the, the full package uh, had some really, really good, important recommendations to the governor and to the legislature. The nurses highly supported, in particular, I'll highlight a couple of them, expanding Minnesota care to 275% of the federal poverty level. Right now, it's at 200%. One of the things the task force was trying to deal with is this issue of sort of what we call, referred to as seamless coverage. Now, I'll argue in the big picture, you want seamless coverage, you get rid of the seams, um, but <laughs> it's <laughs> right. pretty easy. Um, that gets me, hopefully, to our uh, conversation in a moment about why the nurses want to see single-payer or universal health care. Um, but in the meantime, one of the, the things, one of the seams um, is a cliff that happens, right? So between 200 and 275% of poverty level, that's really you're working poor, mm-hmm. to be honest. And or folks that are starting a business or are, a, you know, self-employed and really struggling to kind of get going and or don't know, such as what um, uh, some of the folks at Land Stewardship Project have told me as farmers deal with what you, you don't know necessarily from year to year what your income level may be. So one year you may be you know, it's a good crop year, and you're able to be at a certain level, and right. then you might be on minsure because it's subsidies and you can get help with. But then the next year, you drop down, and you may be now qualifying under the MinCare. Right. Uh, it's it, it's craziness, right? So with MinCare, if we can expand it from 200 to 275, we catch a large group of folks who really suffer severe sticker shock when they go from MinCare, that is a program that has at least reasonable, right, share of premium costs for the um, for the patient, um, as well as uh, lower co-pays and no deductibles and things of that nature, to suddenly going on to the MinSure market where you are going to pay most likely more out-of-pocket for the premium. And if you don't pay more out-of-pocket for the premium, you're going to get hit on the back end because right. it's going to be with the deductibles and the co-pays, and that will discourage people using it again. We get back to that. So 
we fully support an expansion to 275. Again, it used to be that. We'd like to see it go back up to that. There was also a recommendation that um, undocumented non-citizens have an opportunity to access Minnesota Care, uh, both adults and children, up to 200% of federal poverty level. Now, I understand that this can be a controversial issue, but again, I'm going back to just the main point here. Does it really matter what your citizenship status is if you're walking around with a serious health issue Mm -hmm. that could be contagious or could infect others. It is much more cost effective and, of course, from the nurse's perspective, much more moral to simply take care of the patient on the front end. There will be a lower cost overall within the system if we do that. Um, And so it is actually, in our mind, a much better way in which to deal with that is to go ahead and let's just treat people on the front end. Let's take care of them. We help everybody in the long run if we do that, right? right? And that cost is not nearly as significant as people want to say that it is Mm -hmm. um, because there is this idea that, you know, everybody's getting everything for free and all of that. It's not so. When I was out in California, um, I I was out there working for 10, 11 years, and there was some studies done on, um, you know, undocumented workers' use of the healthcare system, and and out of L.A., a a workers' center actually came up with a statistic after studying this that on average, and this is a national cost, but about $11 per household per year of this overall system is actually spent on taking care of folks who are undocumented that are here in this country. That is really, really tiny within this big system. If we want to control costs in this system, we got to get back to that $66 million, right, that isn't actually being paid to anybody who actually provides health care. we got to keep our eye on the ball here and not watch the shiny penny that is put in front of us to divide us and keep us arguing with each other instead of seeing what's going on behind us, right, which is this corporate issue. So um, so we were in support of those two. And probably one of the most important from our perspective was um, a, um, a recommendation that came out of my work group, and I worked closely with Senator John Marty on this. It is to move forward with a study that will, if we want to really talk about how do we begin to fix this system, we have to first get to how do we finance it. Now, the nurses, along with Senator Marty in this case, happen to fully believe that we should finance it through, we should publicly finance it, but privately deliver it. That that's the system that would work for us. Publicly financed, privately delivered system. That's a single payer system similar to Medicare. Medicare has been privatized over the last 30, 40 years. So as people say, oh my goodness, I don't know if I want to go down the path of doing Medicare. Trust me, Medicare was working better before we let the money changers into the temple on this, right? They they were operating on a very low overhead cost. Traditional Medicare, only three cents of the dollar goes to administrative costs in the private sector, as much as 30 cents of the dollar isn't get, getting spent right. on actual health care. We want to look at that system, and we're, we're willing to compare it to a fully privatized system, compare it to the sort of hybrid system we have right now, and then let's just look at the numbers. Let them fall out where they may. Let, them tell, let those numbers tell us what system could we use to deal first with the financing of the system, and then we can move into what are the things we could do that could help delivery and design of the system right. operate more efficiently and effectively. Because for all the money we spend in this country on health care and 
it's a boatload. It's almost $9,000 per year per person, and that's not even with every person actually using it because there still is $20 million uninsured, even under the Affordable Care Act in this country, and then there's folks with underinsured with the high deductibles. Um, for all of that money, we are ranked 37th by the World Health Organization in our health outcomes. So we are, I believe, just below Costa Rica and just above Slovenia. We do not have the best system in the world, as many people say, and that is not the fault of the incredible human beings that try to deliver the care. It is because the system is based on a for-profit, market-based system, and unfortunately, that just is not working. You know, we often want to say that, you know, the privatization is the thing that will get us efficiency in the system, but the fact of the matter is, is it hasn't really been very efficient in healthcare, as I said, terribly fragmented. And every time we look at trying to tweak the system, we end up laying yet or or agreeing to lay another level of complexity Mm -hmm. on top of the system, which actually, anytime we're doing that, we're creating more barriers to access, not less barriers to care. And so it's not a good idea for us to continue to to fragment the system. It's it's it just doesn't make any sense to me, you know. And and we talk about trying to deal with you know evidence based medicine when we talk about how to deliver the care, but we never seem to want to talk about evidence based policy as we create a system that would actually work for the patients. During the task force meeting, several people, including LSP members, shared their stories about struggling to find and keep affordable, quality health care. How important were those testimonials? Stories move people. It was critically important for people to hear the personal stories. And I got to give major kudos, not just because I happen to be being interviewed by Land Stewardship Project, but in all honesty, Land Stewardship Project did a wonderful job of making sure that your members were able to step forward and share with everybody on that task force their very powerful stories and very personal stories about what was happening to them within the context of this current system. Those stories resonated. I know in one particular meeting, I think it was the one we had up in St. Cloud, or it may have been Egan, I don't remember, but um, there was, yeah, it was the Egan one, excuse me. Mm-hmm. There was a, um, a, a member of yours that told a horrific story about losing a 28-year-old daughter um, within this system, and there was a doctor sitting next to me who leaned over and said, I I am, you know, even as a physician, this still, I cannot believe this. This is so hard, you know, to sit here and hear this. And, of course, the physicians also see it, as do the nurses on a regular basis. But nonetheless, the impact is is dramatic and it's important and it is the type of thing that people will relate to as opposed to just you know I can give you statistics um, to beat the band but at the end of the day when someone comes and says you know my child died Mm -hmm. because of the cost just because for the most part they couldn't continue to access this system because they were at the maximum they could afford of all of their savings, everything else. I mean, we are the only nation, industrialized nation in the world that has people go bankrupt because of medical debt. What does that say? Yeah. Right. So they, those stories were incredibly important and powerful. We must continue to tell those stories all around uh, as we go around and start to talk more with individual voters and communities about why we have to take the next step in really creating health care as a human right. 
I just can't tell you how excited we are to be working with Land Stewardship Project. We think we've just got such a natural sort of affinity to be working together on this issue. And um, the more we can get out and talk together in the communities, particularly in the rural communities, about getting past sort of what I would call top-line ideology about the, oh, is this government-run health care? It is not government-run health care that we're talking about here. This current system is not working for business. It is not working for government. It is not working for families. It is not working for individuals. And with all of those together, if there is a system, and there is no perfect system, by the way, not anywhere in the world is there a perfect system, but there certainly are better ways to do it than the way we're doing it now. We should come together and make that demand. For more on the Land Stewardship Project's health care reform work, see the Affordable Health Care for All page at www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.